Well, thanks for being here. It wasn't easy to get here myself, so I'm glad that I wasn't the only one, but it seems we have a decent turnout. Um, I was trying to figure out why I was invited here, actually, um, because um, there are a lot of august professors here, and I've been asked to give a keynote first thing in the morning. And I think the reason is that I offer a perspective, hopefully, um, that is informed by academic work, but isn't sort of driven by it. And my audience at the RSC is um, partly a policy audience, partly a practitioner audience. And we're trying to use the best understanding of neuroscience that we can to uh, improve professional practice and inform public policy. I should say something about the RSA first, I think, because some of you will know it, uh, many of you won't. Um, the RSA is as much to do with the arts as LSE is to do with economics or side business schools to do with business. In other words, uh, the, the name is slightly misleading. It's, sort of, it's a historical artifact, really. So. We, sorry, is the mic okay? Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, that was a very, very rigorous technical test, thanks for that. Um, we have a new strapline at the RSA, um, which is a slightly grand one. Um, some would even say hubristic. Our strapline is 21st century enlightenment. Now, when this was doing the rounds internally, there was a lot of discussion about it. It seemed a little bit overblown to many people. But eventually we landed up on it, and we're going to be stuck with it now for a little while, I think. So what I've got, got here is just a little reference to what that's about. Now, the original enlightenment was sort of about reconceiving human nature on the basis of various forms of social and scientific progress. And we're trying to do the same thing now. So we're looking for an attitude that is at once critiquing who we are, but also trying to go beyond it. Um, and uh, I won't say any more about Foucault, because I know we have people like Nicholas Rose in the audience, and I'll keep to what I know best. Um, the reason we've done this is that um, we need to change the subject, as it were. This was one of our first publications from the RSA Social Brain Project. And it was informed by an, quite a good academic steering group, including people like Chris Frith, um, Robin Dunbar, um, Nick Charter from UCL, and various others. And they helped us to reconceive, um, you know, if, if the rational man, if the homo, 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 economic, homo economicus isn't really working for us, what might the alternative be? And the reason we need that is that a lot of these assumptions that are outlined by Kenneth Gergen here are, are falling into question. Um, they're not completely undermined. I mean, the view, the view of the rational individual wasn't based on naivety. It wasn't that we thought that uh, humans really behaved at all times like individual profit maximizers, but rather that it was the best model we thought we had. It was the one that we, we ran with because it was giving us some predictive and explanatory power. But now with environmental crises and various other problems, there might be, might be time to reconceive who we are. But what's the brain got to do with it? So we've got, we've got various theories of human nature about, um, you know, we're socially embedded, we've evolved, um, we're very sensitive to cultural and social norms. We know a lot about, uh, I won't say so much about behavioral economics today because I know many other people will, but we know a lot about the, the basis for our decision being non-rational. So it's informed by heuristics, informed by altruistic punishment, discounting the future and various things like that. But however much you say this, people always come back to the question, well, that's all very well, but what is it about the brain? And uh, this conference in many ways is posing that question. Uh, what is it with the brain is a lovely uh, thing to think about because my basic answer to that and I think the answer of the social brain project is that the question is the very answer it's an ongoing question it's not something that seeks a final uh, verdict at the moment but rather a question we're now living with and the fact we're living with that question is what's of value to us now Andy Clark gives a slightly um, facetious reference here to what happens to the brain uh, and how it gives he follows on this quote by talking about and, and watch in amazement as it gives rise to reason 
uh, wonder and, and creativity and something to that effect. But it's odd, right? You look at this organ, this blob of meat, and you think, well, what, what do we do with that? And the RSA answer basically is that you use it as bait. You use it as a kind of meat, if you like, to uh, stimulate interest in people's behavior. The brain functions as a social device to get people interested in who they are and what they do. Now, if you ask people about their minds, they might feel you're being invasive, you're probing them. Ask about their psychologies, you feel they're being analyzed somehow. But the brain is a common reference point. The brain is something we share. And when we're doing the STEER report, which is the, the follow-up report to changing the subject, this involved giving principles to people, which we'll come to in a second, uh, about their brains and behavior, and asking them what they thought about it and whether it was relevant to them. And um, one of the replies was particularly pertinent, I felt. He felt, said, I felt it applied to me and maybe had an evolutionary basis that was shared by everyone. And I think that, for me, is what we have to work with. The brain animates people, the brain interests people. And rather than spend all of our time thinking about um, how much purchase does neuroscience give us on the human sciences or the social sciences, we should spend a bit more time thinking about that motivation. What is it about the brain that gets people talking that, that the mind doesn't and psychology doesn't? So going from one prestigious slide to another. Is the brain the new weather? This is just something that I, I cooked up when I was trying to explain it to somebody. The brain is the new weather in a certain sense that, you know, why do we speak about the weather in the first place? We speak about the weather because it's something we have in common. So many of you came in this morning saying maybe it's cold, it's grey, it's a bit miserable. The brain's not quite like that, but it is something that we're all subject to, and it's something that as we develop increasingly sophisticated language to speak about, we'll be able to share reference points too. So we already have people speaking about serotonin kicks when they're talking about happiness. We already have people casually referring to left and right hemisphere, often, often mistakenly, but nonetheless, the language of the brain is becoming more common. And it's like the new weather in the sense that we can to some extent predict it, but it's also largely out of our control. I just want to leave that with you because it's something we may come to back, back to in questions. I'm not sure whether this is just a neat sort of minor point that's kind of amusing or whether it's just nothing. But as I was explaining to someone, I said, the, the brain's like the new weather. I saw this light bulb flash in their head and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll come back to that and see if anyone else feels the same way. But what I really want to talk about, what the core of this talk is about, is reflexivity. Because social reflexivity is not new. It's, you know, based on the idea that we are aware of the conditions of our action more than ever before. We're aware of the class conditions, the cultural conditions, the social conditions. And we use those conditions to reflect upon our behavior and try and act in new ways on the basis of that understanding. But now we have this notion of neurological reflexivity, which is trying to move things along a little bit. Now, why neurological and not neural is because it's a study of the brain, the interest in the brain, the uh, unraveling of the brain in many ways, that is motivating for people. It's not just neural reflexivity. It's not just using the knowledge about the brain to inform our actions and understand the conditions of our actions. It's using the social interest in the brain, using the collective understanding of the brain to try and reconceive who we are and how we act. And Ian McGilchrist was at the RSA very recently. I don't know if any of you have read The Master and His Emissary. It's a truly wonderful book, if you ask me. Um, but he uses this quote near the end of the book, and I, I just highlighted the interest in, because when I read this, I felt there's something here that's beautiful, and I honed in on this. It's not the, the rising, it's not the growth in neuroscience. It's not the thousands of papers and thousands of researchers that Nick Crowes mentioned yesterday. For me, that's most interesting. It's the fact that cab drivers, policemen, nurses, um, teachers are showing an interest in neuroscience. 
Now, the problem is neuroscience is so incredibly complicated that they don't yet have a way of properly, adequately engaging in it. But that's something that at the RSA, as a charity, we're trying to change, and that's really the purpose of the Social Brain Project. It's not so much about the brain. It's about behavior. It's about cognition. But it's about trying to use the brain as a kind of prop to invite people in to discuss themselves in a way they might not otherwise do. The reason this is relevant now is I think that while the brain may be, well, the rise of neuroscience may be conceived as kind of a modernist thing, it's the growth of knowledge, the rise in uh, awareness of the brain is much more postmodern. We're becoming conscious of the brain and reflecting on it on an ongoing basis. Some of you may know this quote already, but um, he begins the, sort of the preamble to this quotation. It's one about revisiting the past, but not innocently. We can no longer view the past naively. Um, in the same way, we can no longer think of the brain naively or our behavior naively. Because we have this notion that we have these natural constraints on our action, because we know we have neurons and synapses and neurotransmitters, we can no longer think, decide, act without some sense that maybe we're not as in control as we thought we were. Maybe somehow the brain is doing it for us. And therefore, we, we don't quite have the neat solution that Umberto Eco says here. We can't quite say, you know... Um, as a neuroscientist would say, blah, 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 because we don't have that confidence that neuroscience can really speak to behavior and, and social issues with that clarity. But nonetheless, we need to think of this. Uh, the reason I chose this quote is, by the way, if any of you don't know who Barbara Carland is, that's her there. But um, we'll move along from that. Um, there's a problem with this whole approach, of course, um, which is that the brain is so, not even just the brain, behavioral science, psychology, uh, neuroeconomics, social psychology, neuroanthropology, no matter what subject you want to choose, uh, giving it to the general public is going to be fraught with difficulty because the things will be misconstrued, misused, misapplied. Um, many of you will know that probably the most famous neuromyth of all is that we use only 10% of our brains. And we know this can't really be true because neuronal tissue is very expensive, it's very heavy. In evolutionary terms, it wouldn't make really any sense that we would carry around so much of it without using it. Uh, for a long, early in neuroscience, they used to say we don't know what 90% of the brain does, um, but that was something rather different from saying we only use 10% of it. But the, what's interesting about this for me is where it came from. And um, the William James quote was over, you know, about 100 years ago when he said that he doubts that we, use, we achieve 10% of our intellectual potential, which if someone were to say that now, you wouldn't necessarily balk. You might think, well, it's maybe a little on the low side, but, but it's conceivable that we're all underachieving at some level. Um, but what's curious about this is that William James made this comment uh, in, a, in a piece of general writing for the public, and it was seized upon by a journalist, um, which wouldn't normally have been a problem because that would have come and gone in a day. But he happened to, the journalist happened to write it in the foreword to perhaps the best-selling self-help book of all time, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And this, this, this idea of we only use 10% of our brain went into that book in the foreword, was read by millions of people, and hasn't ever quite left us since then. So I just put that as a note of caution. We're aware of the fact that it's problematic to engage in this way with, with knowledge about brains and behavior. But we think on balance it's worth doing. We're willing to sort of take, take that risk. Why the social brain? Um, well, I've already mentioned the first part of it, really. The brain is social in the semiotic cultural sense that it's a common reference point, a shared resource to um, refer to as something we have in common like the weather. But the second sense is more interesting. I think, as Nick Rose said towards the end of his talk yesterday, um, there are elements of neuroscience, particularly in social neuroscience, which are much more accommodating to human and, natural, human and social sciences. Um, Cacioso's sta statement here was really powerful for me. It was the notion of, for so long we've thought of the brain as a computer. 
But don't think of the brain as a computer. Think of it as a computer with wireless broadband, and you get much, more, much closer to the sense of who we are. So we have an incredible ability to respond to other people, sometimes even when we don't see them. We, there are experiments where there's a blind between people and people flinch in response to each other. At some level, which we don't fully understand yet, we don't end at, the, you know, end at our skins. We do connect to each other at some uh, deep social level, some fundamental social level. Now, this is all very well, but I'm giving this talk about neurologi neurological reflexivity. Um, reflexivity, I suppose, is a kind of metacognition in the sense that you're being asked to reflect upon you know, who you are, what your nature is. You're thinking about thinking in a sense. So Minsky's statement here is particularly personal. You cannot think about thinking without thinking about thinking about something. And what do we choose to think about? Well, the way the RSA Social Brain Project is going is we're going to focus on uh, these three things. We're going to try and use the best available knowledge about behavior and the brain to inform people's control over their decisions, their habits, and their attention. Not quite yet. <laughs> I had plenty of slides on that, but I decided to cut them out because they were getting too big. So I'm just going to speak from knowledge. Now, decisions, um, I've already mentioned to some extent. You'll hear more about that um, from the perspective of neuroeconomics in particular. But also the, 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 the fact that decisions are framed by the environment so fundamentally and that people are maybe only really waking up to that now. The decisions they take in everyday life are not principally a matter of reason or intellect or... Um, free choice, but really are heavily mediated by the choice architecture available to them. Habits, um, I will actually refer to um, what I wanted to say about habits, because here there's an interesting reference to the brain, and um, there, is a, there seems to be a neurological foundation for habituation. I want to read this just because um, it says that habituation has a neurological basis. Two groups of neurons, ventral, tegmental, and substantia nigra pars compacta areas, and the dopamine they release are critical for reinforcing certain kinds of behavior. And they're references. Now, I have no idea what that means. I'm not pretending to. I'm just making the point that habituation, uh, we're waking up to the fact that really our well-being, our sense of who we are, is a process of gradually learning to do things so that we don't have to think about how we do them anymore. So gradually we become more and more habitual, uh, and we know that this process increases through the lifespan. We become less open to new experience. Uh, our, our intelligence becomes more and more crystallized, less fluid. Um, a wonderful recent study at UCL suggested that to learn a new habit took 66 days. Now, clearly that's just a headline rather than the whole study and the whole process. But the claim was that really to, to do something radically new where you no longer have to rely, rely on willpower to reinforce it, it's incredibly difficult. So if you want to improve healthy eating or if you want to... Um, get people to, to vote more or engage, engage politically. Um, changing that to the level of habits is hard because willpower is scarce. We know, we know this as well. We know that if you, um, if you resist the cake in the morning, uh, you might have trouble with the pizza at lunchtime and the alcohol in the evening will be impossible. We just run out of willpower because it's a scarce resource. And when we did STEER, we gave people um, five principles of their behavior that we wanted them to think about. And decisions, habits, and attention came into all of them. Attention is really about... This is more of a speculation at the moment. But there have been a lot of people, Nicholas Carr, Susan Greenfield, um, and various speakers at the RSA recently, who have said that our screen culture now is, is so intense that we may be, to some extent, in danger of losing control of our attention, more than perhaps we're aware of. Now, 
that's not fear-mongering or technophobia. It's just waking up to the fact that if we're constantly using screens for most of the time, most of our, or most of our days, um, we're not really evolutionarily prepared for that. Um, and it may well be the case that our concentration becomes fractured, thin, it can become harder to follow an argument over a longer period of time. Uh, reading a whole book might begin to look rather demanding. Now, this generation may not feel it so much because we've had a sort of analog digital balance. But depending, my son is 19 months old. He's already playing with my iPod. He's already um, quite confidently playing with the mouse on the screen. Um, that may well be fine. I don't know. It's merely a note of caution. It's a kind of precautionary principle of attention, if you like, rather than uh, we have precautionary principles on lots of environmental issues. But when it comes to the, our attention, our concentration, I think we need to be a little bit more careful about it. So one of the projects of the RSA now is a, a mindfulness project. We're actually uh, getting in a trained mindfulness teacher to teach members of the general public to practice mindfulness. Uh, it's a standardized eight-week course. And the reason the eight-week course is um, particularly valuable for scientific purposes is it's, it's, we can replicate it. So whereas before it was quite difficult to build a body of knowledge in meditation because there are so many different techniques, now we have um, one particular technique that can be very easily reproduced uh, you know, so that the literature, literature builds up time over time. And what, the, the reason that we're doing that is that not that we, we want to prove which has already been proven, which is that, that mindfulness meditation is good for your health, good for your well-being. That's as good as, as good as a fact as almost anything is, I think. What's interesting is with respect to habits and decisions because... We know that if you learn a good practice like that, it doesn't have to be meditation, it could also be healthy eating or exercise, that willpower is weak and after a period of time, our ability to keep on doing it goes down. So what we need is reinforcement and um, we're looking for means of reinforcement and that's what the, the study will be. And we've got this notion of um, secular Sangha. Sangha is a Buddhist notion about um, spiritual community that keeps itself together and encourages people to carry on uh, the practice. Now, we can't have a sort of explicit religious uh, position like that, but what we can do is try and take the best from it, which is about groups of people helping each other to do what they want to do anyway. Uh, it's kind of like a spiritual book club in a way, you could say. Now, when I was speaking last night at the uh, dinner, quite a few people mentioned Steer, and I was pleasantly surprised because this was um, recently released. Um, I say recently, about four months ago. Now, you may notice something, which is that this is meant to be a theory of human nature, and this is meant to be about public engagement, and they're both pretty slim volumes, right? They're not massive tomes. And that's, I think, part of the reason I'm here as well, because it's about finding a language and a degree of simplicity that can communicate to doctors, nurses, policemen, people who wouldn't normally think of these things in their day jobs. Um, another project, again, focusing on these three issues, is uh, fuel efficiency. We're, we are funded by Shell now to, um, or we're, we're about to be, to be doing a project in which we get drivers to think about their fuel efficiency, the speed they drive, how much stuff they have in the car, and we, they'll be measuring this with telemetry to figure out over time whether, what kind of interventions reduce, reduce fuel use. Now, again, that in itself is not interesting. What's interesting is the brain behaviour side of it, which is that we give people the knowledge of what to do with their car and their cells, and it may or may not work. In fact, it, it probably runs out very quickly. But what our hypothesis is, what our project is about, is not just giving the, not just giving the practical uh, intervention, not just saying, here's what you should do, but also saying, here's the list of reasons why you probably won't be able to do it, or the kinds of, things, the kinds of obstacles you'll face, the kind of uh, natural constraints you have by being a human being. 
So you'll find it hard to keep on you know, taking stuff out of the boot. You'll find it hard not to accelerate. And there are lots of good behavioral and uh, brain reasons for that. Now, there's more to say, but I think, um, I think I'm just going to move on from there because uh, be, uh, I think we'll get more out of this if I respond to questions because it is quite a practical project and not presenting a thesis as such. Um, I would just ask you to remember the, the core point about the social brain being, in my view, two things. Being, on the one hand, figurative, a sort of shared cultural resource that can motivate people to talk about the brain. And, on the other hand, literal, in the sense that um, it's becoming clearer to us the degree to which we really are social. Thanks for now.